Well, we're on the home stretch. What usually happens at this point is that my adrenaline starts to drop. Before the afternoon is out, I will be yawning, because that's one of the symptoms of the adrenaline dropping, the yawn response. I am very carefully monitoring my skin temperature. I am just taking my temperature. It is now... Oh, I did mention that when adrenaline goes up, skin temperature comes down, right? And that... Did I mention that there are little stress dots that you can buy... Uh, that on my list, uh, it's on the, on, on the book list, but let me just say a word about it. Because during our lunchtime, we had a very good discussion with a, a small group and, and talked a bit about how in stress management you, you, you can use the phenomenon of cold hands, the temperature of your fingers, the, uh, uh, as a monitor for your stress and stress arousal and to help you, guide you into the management of that. <clears throat> and to facilitate that, in my book, Adrenaline and Stress, many years ago, I introduced uh, a, what had come on the market at that point, uh, something called a stress dot. It's a tiny little dot, uh, fairly small, that is in fact a thermometer. And the color of the dot. It's a liquid crystal. Sometimes used now in medicine too for monitoring skin temperature of babies and children. Just put the strip on their forehead there and you can tell what the temperature is. It's, it's that sort of thing. But this has been formulated to cover the range of temperature from room temperature up to blood temperature. So you get a pretty good idea of what the temperature of your hand, your fingers are. It's somewhere between room temperature and uh, let me just check here, yeah, the room temperature, 77, it's quite warm, 77.4, uh, yeah, 78.4, somewhere between that and blood temperature, which I'm talking Fahrenheit, sorry about that, I have no idea what it is in centigrade, <laughs> I could go back to school, <clears throat> but uh, 94.8, and uh, somewhere between that temperature, controlled by the volume of blood in your hand, which is controlled by the amount of adrenaline or vasoconstriction. You get the idea? And so the more blood there is down here, the more relaxed the, 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 vest, the blood vessels are here, the warmer your hand is going to be. That's why if you preach a sermon, you come and shake my hands after I preach tomorrow, my hands are going to be very cold. Because that's that adrenaline stuff, you see. And so I, I just checked my... T- this is a little infrared thermometer that we can get in the States now and I use these with my clients all the time it's a very simple gadget infrared, you put your finger on the, the end of it then you press the button and instantly you have your blood your skin temperature and I should be running about 93, 94 degrees Fahrenheit I'm running 84 now so my temperature is 10 degrees below what I normally am because I am here Pumping adrenaline. You follow? So I've, I've taken it, remember that, because later on near the end I'm going to take it again just to demonstrate that as I get near the end of a task, my hand starts to warm again. We've uh, <clears throat> come to the final session and there are still a few things that I would like to share with you. I'm going to finish off uh, my... 
discussion on stress by <clears throat> taking a moment to talk about one to talk about two things first of all the importance of dream sleep and then uh, oh, let me just bear with me one moment while I I need to just find where I'm going with this uh, I, I I'm trying to turn that off for, for now trying to make a case this, this morning for the importance of sleep, nature's remedy, nature's uh, opportunity to get back inside the box. I don't have the time to give you a full lecture on physiology, sleep, or, or psychological benefits, etc., except to say that there's no doubt about it in my mind that the renewing process, the recovery process, has to include the sleep period because, after all, that's a big part of your day and it's a pity to waste it and not utilize it for your benefit. I also shared the, the Commission on Sleep finding uh, and the idea of a sleep bank that can be overdrawn and you can make deposits and you have up to seven days in order to excuse me, make up that deficiency and if you don't, there is a uh, penalty that accumulates over the course of time. <clears throat> the slave sleep cycle, about 90 minutes, usually ends with a short period of dream sleep. The first cycle of the night, it's, it's very short, maybe two or three minutes. As the night progresses, the cycles, the second cycle, it may go to six minutes. Third cycle goes longer. Usually, usually the longest amount of dream sleep comes in the last cycle of the night, if you sleep for nine hours. In fact, the last cycle of sleep can be equivalent to all the others put together in terms of the dream that you're getting. Now, why is a dream sleep important? Generally speaking, you can take sleep and divide it into two categories. We, they, they are stages of sleep, but that's not important for our purpose here. Generally, you can just think of sleep as two separate, the two types of sleep. There is non-dream sleep, which is the first part of the sleep cycle. And after you've had this, it was the deepest, you're almost, you know, you, you, you can be in a very deep sleep, you, you're almost paralyzed. And then something happens and you come into what is called a paradoxical sleep because a lot of movement and twitching and so on, and particularly your eyes start to flutter. It's called rapid eye movement. You, 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 sometime when you 
um, watch someone else sleeping. Like when little Andy comes up and snuggles in my arm here, uh, he, uh, he falls asleep a lot faster than I do because he doesn't have this adrenaline problem quite as much as I have. The squirrels have all gone away. They, they've, they've left him alone for a while, so his adrenaline is normal. Then I just watch him as he falls asleep. And after a little while, I notice his eyelids twitching like that. And that's... See, even animals dream. All need to dream. But to get to the dream, you've got to first do the non-dream sleep. Now, non-dream sleep is primarily for the benefit of our physical fatigue. Our muscles need it. It's primarily for physical rejuvenation. The rest that your body needs. Now, so if for non-dream sleep, it, you don't have to be unconscious to be achieving that non-dream sleep. So if you're lying there trying to fall asleep, and you're just, as long as you're just relaxing, this is why a relaxation exercise is very, very beneficial. As long as you are using it to relax, you are doing your thing for the non-dream sleep. People who do physical work primarily need the non-dream sleep. You know, laborers, farmers, people who have to do heavy-duty stuff. They need the non-dream sleep because that's what rejuvenates the physical side of their being. You get it, huh? Now, what's this dream sleep all about? Dream sleep is the equivalent, I'm just going to use a computer analogy. Are you, are you familiar with the fragmentation program you, that you need to use in your computer? Not? Some, some of you are. If you have a computer, every now and again, your computer might come up and say, you need to defragment your hard drive. See, as you use your hard drive, it, it uses temporary memory, and it's got a little piece here, and then it's a little piece there, and it becomes discombobulated. That's a, I, I, I use that expression in America, and they have no idea what I mean by it. I think it's a, an English phrase, right? The, the hard drive becomes discombobulated. It's, 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 it's jumping backwards and forwards all through the hard drive. So the process of doing that, it slows down. And eventually your computer is running very slowly. And if your computer is running slow, it needs the hard drive to be defragmented. The defragmentation program goes in there, determines which are temporary files, eliminates them, takes all the other bits and pieces and, and rewrites them and compacts them and puts them together so the drive can get to them quickly, not jumping backwards and forwards. It can just do so nice and smart and it speeds everything up. That's called the defragmentation program. The dream sleep of the human brain and probably all other animals that dream as well, the dream sleep is the defragmentation program that the brain needs to be smart and efficient and to keep itself going well. So we have this first non-dream sleep needed for physical rejuvenation. And then after that's been done, the brain switches and this strange bird emerges called dream sleep. And you're twitching and your eyes are fluttering and, 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 and your, your muscle tone comes back because the brain is now doing its defragmentation. Now in the process of defragmentation, you begin to dream things. 
If the brain is trying to figure out, you know, this happened and where do I put it? It's, it's trying to find out. It's trying to figure out, do, where do I put this? It, 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 it literally asks self several questions. Do I, do I forget it? And anything is, that is what we call short-term memory is taken out. It's temporary. Dump it. I ask you, yesterday, yesterday, can you remember everything that happened to you every minute of the day? Can you? That last, that dream cycle, dumped it. So part of dreams' function is to help us forget. A very famous British neurologist once, uh, Hewing Jackson once said, the primary task of the brain is not to remember, but to forget. And as I get older, <laughs> I bless Jackson <laughs> for saying that because the primary function of the brain is not to remember, it's to forget. If we couldn't forget, oh my word, we'd all go crazy. So, it's an important function of the dream sleep, is to decide what does the brain... See, the brain, you know, how, how big is the hard drive in your, your computer? 80 gig, 100 gig, 250 gig? That's nothing compared to what the brain is. But even the brain has a finite memory. And if from the day of birth, my brain remembered everything that has happened to me right up to this point in my life, the brain would have to be the size of this room probably. You get my point. So, something's got to give. Forgetting is a part of that. Part of the problem with severe uh, you know, grief and things like that, or traumatic stress, part of the problem is I can't forget. You can't forget. It keeps, keeps coming up. You just can't get rid of it. You see, and that, when it's disrupted... So, dream sleep is important for, for, for forgetting. Dream sleep is important for eliminating uh, and resolving conflicts. So many of our dreams are conflicted dreams. I don't believe in dream analysis. Sorry. I used to have some faculty members that keep trying to push me. We've got to teach dream analysis. Nonsense. You're, you know, you can't tell me that symbols that people dream of in China have the same significance for the symbols I dream of here. If you've never seen a snake, how, do you, how can you dream about snakes? So, the content of your dream is mostly irrelevant. Sometimes it does present conflict that's not resolved. And so a dream can summon... But usually the conflict does not need a dream analyst to tell you what it is. It is very obvious. One very common dream I have is that I'm in a public place, like giving a public lecture like this, and I have a shirt on, goes down to about here, and nothing else. <laughs> Now, that's not a pretty sight. <laughs> and I'm, what am I trying to do, you see? Or I'm in a, in a room and there's, there's guests and I'm younger and, and I'm trying so hard to cover it. Now, come on, you don't have to be a smart psychologist to figure that one out. What probably happened early in my life? As a child, I was embarrassed, maybe. I came into, here's a fly out. Can you catch flies like that? <laughs> Watch. Oh. Oh. You grow up in Africa, you learn how to catch flies. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, obviously at some time in my life, I must have been very embarrassed by not having my, or just having an underpants on or something like that. That, that, that could be one, uh, one, uh, one reason. But do you know what? It's only speculation. There's no way you can ever prove anything from back there anyway. So it's, it's a pointless thing. But I have that dream regularly. Because my brain still hasn't quite sorted out that conflict. So, what you dream is not important. But that you dream is important. Most people cannot remember their dreams. Each dream cycle erases the memory of the dream cycle before it. So what happens is that usually it's the last dream cycle of the night that you remember. Because the first thing that dream sleep determines is that the last dreams were not important and can be erased. So usually. It's very frightening in the, halfway through the night. You might remember that, but that's extraordinary. It's usually the last cycle. So now, now I'm leading up to the punchline. If you use your brain, your mind, if, if you are, uh, do probably what most of us here do, that we do more mental work than physical work. Dream sleep becomes even more important. But there's an imbalance here because I only get to my dream sleep after my non-dream sleep. But my non-dream sleep, I have to be tired enough physically to want to stay sleeping. So I have to have, well, what I'm leading up to is that in order to have proper sleep balance, you have to fatigue your body. We are not getting enough exercise, physical outlet to warrant staying in bed for nine hours a night. And that's part of the struggle many of us are having. But if I'm not fatigued enough to stay in non-dream sleep, I'm not going to earn the right to do the dream sleep. Do you get that? Therefore, exercise is, it's got benefits galore, but one of them is it, it, we get tired so that it would keep us in bed so we can earn the right to dream. That's, that's the principle. <clears throat> and, and the reason we need nine hours, if we just did first, usually <coughs> if you retire and you stop using your brain, your need for sleep diminishes. If you're not using your computer, your need for defragmentation diminishes, right? The same applies to the brain. And so often, the sleep, you, you may want to sleep longer for other reasons, but the need for dream sleep diminishes when you stop using your brain. And it's the dream sleep that you really have to focus on for your... <clears throat> for your uh, uh, complete uh, recovery, rejuvenation. Uh, any questions? So just before I go, we don't have another question time, so I want to make sure if there's any question that I've uh, resolved that that issue. Yes. I'm sorry. That could diminish. Yeah, I'm, I'm suggesting that 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 could be less. It, it, but for those of us who are active, it's the nine-hour sleep. 
It, 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 see, it's because it's the dream sleep we need. If you don't get enough dream sleep, you, you don't function efficiently, effectively. One of the things I noticed when I, 22 years ago, shifted from just four or five hours a night, and, and, and by the way, you can't go from four or five hours a night to nine hours overnight. It, it has to be done very, just a little bit, a little bit. When I finally got to nine hours, what I noticed was how much more efficient I was. I could do tasks in a third of the time. If I was writing something, I only had to do it once, not ten times over. So my productivity actually, because people must say, I, I can't give up nine hours because I need that extra two or three hours. I wouldn't get my work done. No, 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 you don't. You miss, you miss the point. I actually started achieving more after I slept more than I was getting before. And that's pretty much... Uh, true across the world. I, I get many letters from former students and others who, you know, come back and, and give me feedback. And I tell you that this has been the experience of many. Now, there's one last thing and then I'm going to move on. Yes? Why do people say if you take a nap, don't sleep more than half an hour? Yeah, because you fall asleep. Now, that's the point is, do you want to sleep or do you want a nap? Um, but... If your nap is going to last one hour, that's fine. I'd rather, you know, it's better than a half an hour. But uh, I, I think that must be a, 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 that really is a myth. Well, they say disturbs your night's sleep. No, well, yes, that's another issue. That is another issue. That, and uh, thank you for raising it. That's a good question. Because in order to get in, uh, sleep enough at night, they, they, they want you not to sleep during the day. I mean, that's the idea. But your aim here is, to, is, is nine hours, right? And if you sleep an hour and a half in the afternoon, you should be able to try and sleep for seven and a half hours later that night, or, or cumulatively later on. Now, probably if you sleep an hour and a half in the afternoon, it, it's a little pointless to try and get nine hours of sleep at night unless you are really are tired. So, uh, but I can tell you this, you can dump all these myths the, the, the Sleep Commission, I think, was absolutely accurate. That it, 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 it's, it's a question of the total sleep for the day factor, right? So the more you sleep in the afternoon, the less sleep you will need in the evening. But you're going to have to go to one and a half hours. You're going to have to go to the sleep cycle for it to count as sleep. But I, I think that myth arises that for many people, um, and, and for older people, they, they generally... You know, it, I, I do not discourage people from not sleeping in the afternoon because they're going to have more problems in the evening. We have a problem sleeping, period. And that's the larger issue. And that is that we have to do something. And, and what wakes us up? You know, you sleep for about three hours usually, and then you wake up. You're waking up every one and a half hours, but you really wake up there at three hours. Now you can't get back to sleep again. It's because your adrenaline is so hyper that the moment it's had a little rest, it, it wants to come alive again. It gets a second wind. And it's the, the, the challenge is, how do I get that adrenaline down? Now, this then leads me to this, this, this last thing. And I, I usually leave this until it's near the end so I can make a quick getaway. <laughs> and that is, I want to just say a few words about caffeine. Starbucks here. Starbucks is the modern day opium den. (laughs) 
I was sharing at lunch that I have a friend who's an African-American pastor, wonderful guy, but they had to move home, resettle in another area of Los Angeles. His top criterion for his new home was that it had to be within walking distance of a Starbucks. He cannot start his day without a Starbucks fix. So I say to him, why don't you just make yourself a cup of coffee at home? You know his response? It's not the same. And he's right. It's probably not the same. It probably has twice as much caffeine in it. Tell me, if you were in the coffee industry selling coffee, would you up your caffeine or down or lower it? Of course. What did, the, what did the tobacco industry do years ago? It genetically modified tobacco plants to do what? Increase the nicotine. Because that was the addicting ingredient, right? Now they're paying for it. Well, the same thing is happening in the coffee industry. What sells coffee is nicotine. No, not nicotine. That is caffeine. That sells what sells coffee. Now, what's wrong with, with caffeine? Two major things. First thing, it's a stimulant to the adrenal system. I've already tried to make, out, make, make you understand or, or, or try to present to you that we are over-adrenalized. So why are you going to add caffeine to make more adrenaline? Well, we, we, you do it because you're, you're over-adrenalized and that's, you're, you're, you're fatigued now. You can't get the energy going because the adrenal system has is, is overdone it. So the only way you can do it then is to go and take caffeine to make it even more to, to get over that. So it's, it's a vicious cycle, you see. A vicious cycle. Caffeine, the, the coffee industry consistently puts out research results that try to make a case for coffee. I see all this research regularly, all the journals I get are the ones that keep me posted on this and always funded by coffee industry. And it came out a little while ago that coffee was, uh, was an uh, 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 antioxidant. And that's very good for you. This is good. This is good. But take the caffeine out and you can still get all the antioxidant you want. See, it's not the caffeine that gives you the antioxidant. Uh, and and, and the, 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 this research is tailored very craftily to leave the caffeine component out of the picture. But caffeine's function is to stimulate your adrenal system. The general rule is this. No more than three cups of coffee a day. And you can then stay within limits. After that, something called caffeine intoxication sets in. You can become caffeine intoxicated. You can become addicted to it so that if you stop it, you get headaches, you get... There was a television program some years ago, and we have a program called 2020, and what they did was they got a group of 10 or 12 people to agree, who were heavy coffee drinkers, to agree to go cold turkey and stop their caffeine, and they had camera crews follow these 10 people over the next month. It's a most illuminating program. 
there were divorces that followed. Headaches, anger. I, I, I mean, it, it was fascinating to see what happens the moment people who become dependent on caffeine are shutted down suddenly. Uh, it, it, many of them were not able to follow through the whole, they had to get back on their caffeine. It, it is a very, very significant uh, addicting substance and, and uh, one, you really have to watch your caffeine intake. The second problem with caffeine, first is that it gives a boost to your adrenal system, we've already got a problem there, too much adrenaline, too much cortisol, now we're just making it worse. The second major problem, and this one I think is even more important, is that caffeine blocks the sedative receptors in the brain. It's something called a chloride ion channel that has uh, several receptors, and one of them is a sedation receptor, and caffeine blocks that, so that natural sleep process becomes disturbed. What is called the sleep architecture is disturbed. Difficult to fall asleep. You can become a, uh, dependent on your addiction, so you can get to sleep, but then you don't get enough dream sleep, and so you're deprived of dream sleep. You're sleeping, but you're not getting dream sleep. Uh, uh, most researchers, and all the researchers I know in the psych- psychopharmacology field, uh, have very strong feelings about how poisonous caffeine can be when abused. Now, no one's you know, condemning a cup or two. But the general rule is not is to avoid caffeine after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When you treat panic anxiety, first thing you do is you stop all caffeine. It doesn't make sense to take something that's feeding a disorder that you're trying to treat, does it? It doesn't make sense. Okay, I think that I'm going to leave that topic for the moment. And uh, Rick, just tell me, we finish at 4.30, right? Okay. So we'll take a break about uh, ten past three or so. We'll take a ten-minute break. Have a, I need a little longer break uh, today than that. But I, I want to, before we take a break, I want to briefly, I'm not going to make this a long thing, but I, I did promise uh, some of you who, who asked me about it to say something about hidden addictions and sexuality. So I'm going to, with your permission, I'm going to switch to that topic. <clears throat> and um, if I can get my computer going again. <clears throat> so that would have been the outline from uh, yesterday. Now we could easily have had this whole conference just on the topic of sexuality. I mean, that, that, that would have given us more than enough work to do. Uh, more than en- enough work to do for, for, for this conference. So this is, has to, I'm, I'm afraid to say, has to be a rather brief presentation. I want, I want to focus on what I think are the crucial issues. <clears throat> I... I want to point you to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 4, if I can uh, spring off some scripture. Where Paul writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Just pause there for a moment. Paul is now saying, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. It's God's will that you should become holy. It's God's will that you should be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, no one of us 
would question that. But having said that, guess where he turns to immediately as his main topic? It's God's will that you become holy. Now, what's the biggest challenge in becoming holy? And he launches right into this, uh, into this topic of sexuality. You, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the le- heathen who do not know God. Uh, that phrase, you, sh- you should learn to control your body. Sexuality has always been a problem. <laughs> I think we can go back to the, the dawn of human existence. It's been a problem. It's been a problem for a number of reasons. It's, it's, it's a powerful uh, force. It, it is... A, it, it probably... Above almost every other aspect of our being has more power than anything else, especially in the male. But not exclusively in the male. Especially in the male. It, it, it is the greatest challenge for us in this new millennium. Both heterosexuality and homosexuality, we have enormous problems ahead. We have enormous problems because our morals are loosening, continue to lose. The sexual revolution hasn't stopped, it still continues to go. It is now the norm in teenagers. It is now the norm to start having sex at about age 14 or 15. Christians as well. It is frightening. Talk to your teenagers, find out what's going on. It's... it's, it's, it's it, 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 it is the focus of a lot of serious uh, problems. Gay marriage is, is, is it, to me, the issue of gay marriage is the least of my concerns. In the States, we, there's a strong concern about this. Now, I, I'm, I honestly don't know what where the UK is on this. Or I, I certainly know where Europe is, but uh, I don't know where Christians are on this issue uh, in, in, in the UK. So, I... I apologize for my ignorance on that. But I can tell you that in the UK there is a lot of turmoil over this issue. But gay marriage is the least of my concerns. Really. I, I, I don't waste any time on concerning about that. Um, anything that will manage the expression of sexuality I think probably is not a bad thing. That's, that's, not, the, that's not my uh, concern. I have concern that behind the gay movement opening up new doors, changing public opinion, getting, mustering and getting support for their form of expression of sexuality. Behind that, the pedophiles are waiting. This is not slippery, slippery slope stuff. I, I, I don't... I don't I don't fall, I don't go slippery slope. A little bit of this, it means you're going to get a lot of that. No, it's not that. I I, I know what's happening in the pedophile world. In the American Psychological Association, we have a big battle going on over whether or not research that can prove that having sex with a child is not damaging to a child is permitted to be published. 
they are producing research left, right, and center to prove that it's okay for an adult to have sex with a child. And what that usually means is a male man having sex with a female child. Now, it's not only that, because if I, even in your newspaper, I, I always watch the newspaper and I have my little clippings here. Just look at this one. Teacher's affair with a 15-year-old was textual, not sexual. And you have a teacher right here in, in, the United, in, in, in the UK. We have it in America all the time. We now are seeing an increased incidence of women reaching down into young boys. So it's changing even on the, on, on the female scene. But the pedophile world is waiting. They are, they are in, in organizations and associations and they've calmed themselves. Do not speak out in public. Let the gays spearhead this movement for us. And then that will open up the opportunity for us to make ourselves heard. For us to say that you're also discriminating against us. This is our preference. We were born this way. Why can't we have access to children? I tell you, this next century is going to be a really serious one. And every loosening of sexual morals we allow just moves us further into the, 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 the quicksand that's going to swallow us up. So I, I have had a serious concern about sexuality. Now that, that's on, on the extreme side. Uh, on, on the other side, I, on the heterosexual side, on normal sexual side, I have concerns. I, I think we are living outside the box here as well. Started many years ago when out of my experience in teaching with pastors in the doctorate ministry program, I again and again and again we confronted the issue of sexuality. As Rick knows, I devote a whole day to the topic in my course, and we are very frank and honest and get, try to get to you know, the bottom line issue. And uh, out of that, I, I became concerned. You see, my, my thesis was that surely, surely, in good Christian men, we should see the best um, the best of sexuality, right? I mean, that, that would be my expectation. Those men who live close to God should surely manifest the absolute best there is. So I, thought, so I asked the question, other sex, sex studies have looked at, are looking at, well, how far have we, how far can we widen? How far have we loosened the, the, the constraints? I asked the question, how good how, how good is it? How good has it become? And launched my study that gave rise to my book, The Sexual Man. I, I, by the time I got to 650 subjects, the publishers were screaming at me, can't we publish? We must get on. We must publish this right away. And I did a very careful analysis. I'm pretty good at my statistics. And, and looked at my data. And I, I, I did some, cal there's some calculations you can do whether you've reached a, a sample now that's adequate so you're not changing the data. And I was satisfied that from a statistical point of view, if I added 6,000 to these, the pool, I'm going to get the same answers, right? Because they results. So we went ahead and published. Right now, I've got 6,000. So way beyond that. But I did a study on the sexuality of, the Christ of Christian males. Asking the question, I wonder how good it gets. When I finished writing that book, I was appalled. 
if this is as good as it gets, we are in trouble. And sexuality, modern day sexuality needs redeeming. It needs redeeming. We're no better than the character of sexuality. I think it's our sexuality that defines our sanctification. That defines my holiness. It defines my holiness. My book, uh, interestingly, the country outside the United States that picked up on it was Germany. Do you know that? Germany picked up my book, The Sexual Man, on it. Magazines wrote articles. I was invited over there. And today I am well known in Germany for my book on male sexuality. And one day I was interviewing a reporter, and he was a German reporter, and, he, and I finally said, I, I'm, I must know, what, what is it about Germany that is so interested in, in this male sexual stuff? And he said to me, we Germans feel so guilty, we do not allow ourselves to experience any pleasure whatsoever. And so this, this was a topic that was very, very interesting to them. Uh, sexuality has lost its way, I'm sorry to say. That we have, um, we, we, we need to really be serious about how the media is distorting sexuality. American television is very good we don't have nudity, we don't have, a, you know, I'm appalled sometimes when I'm in Europe uh, how, how terrible public television is. We don't have that in the United States. But now it's pretty common practice that late afternoon programs which are geared at teenagers always have scenes of kids going to bed, couples going, non-married people going to bed. And that must in time shape the attitudes of teenagers in a very, very way. But it, 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 sexuality has in in my view, become distorted. It's dangerous to children, dangerous to women. Most murders are committed by husbands of wives and often over a sexual issue. It, 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 is, a, it, it is a distorted thing. And it's that distortion that I want to talk about briefly and then I want to relate it to what is now becoming the big issue in the area of sexuality, and that is the, the dramatic drive towards higher levels of sexual addiction. The internet, I'm sad to say, has opened up access to pornography, for example, in an unprecedented way. I now hear more from church leaders about problems of internet pornography on the part of pastors. It's so private, it's no one, it's, it, it can be done so secretly. In the old days you had to sneak off to another town and slip into a porn shop or something. Uh, we don't have to do that anymore. My husband stays up until 2, 3 o'clock every morning. I wonder what he's doing, you know, but I'm so tired I go to bed. I know what he's doing. Um, it, it's become a serious problem and I, I, I am concerned that, it, that, that we, we perhaps are not giving it the sort of attention that we, we, we need to. 
Uh, leaders, the greatest, greatest development challenge, I think, is in the area of sexuality. How, learning how to control that body is, is so absolutely crucial. Uh, recent trends, moral failure is epidemic again. There, I think I mentioned earlier, 25 years ago, it was at a peak quite high, dropped down, now going up and becoming a serious problem again. Uh, my, my two studies, one is the sexual man study of Christian men, first of all, and then uh, I started to get letters from women saying, oh, all right, so you've helped me understand my husband, now when do I get to tell my story? And my daughter came to me one day and said, Dad, you know, I think we have to, you have to do a study of uh, female sexuality. I said, I'm a man, I don't know how I can do that. Well, so she joined me and, an, and a, another a sex therapist, Christian sex therapist, and together we launched a study across the United States. 2,200 women were used uh, for that study. It's because I've got eight or 9,000 now, but, but for the book we published 2,200, which tries to give a picture of where female sexuality is today. Because many women are asking, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I stand with respect to this. I don't know whether I'm normal or not. And then I stood back and now I had the sexual man study and the, 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 the woman study and realized, you know what, we have such a huge gap here between these two extremes. Um, so I, I really don't have time today to go too much into uh, those issues, but I... I would summarize my concerns under the following five headings. I, uh, first of all, uh, before I, I, I launch into that, let me just say that I think that male sexuality has long ago lost its way. It has become too focused on the pleasure dimension of sex. And this, this is probably the biggest mistake we can make. We use sex as our primary pleasure tool. And as anhedonia has grown and, and developed and become more pervasive in our culture, as, sex, as depression has become more widespread and now is very evident in larger and larger numbers of males, what is happening is that they are turning to sexual pleasures in order to give them some little bit of kick. So, I, first of all, let's understand the hazards of success. One, it's clear from the research, one of the greatest hazards of driving for success, pursuing success, is that ultimately it ends in adultery. Whether it's in the Christian world, uh, in, the, in the secular world or the Christian world. I've seen it again and again. 20 years ago, a researcher from the University of Boston identified the four A's of success. They listed in an earlier outline, but I just want to mention them now quickly. That the drive for whether you're successful or not, moral failure occurs if you're extremely successful, it also occurs if you fail. It's both ends of the extreme that you then turn. The, 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 the four A's of success. First one is that a drive for success, first of all, uh, develops a, a certain aloneness. People who are driven for success become loners. Because you see, it, it, it's, it's not a team effort, it's a me effort. And so you, 
That aloneness, we see it historically in, 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 in people like uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggart and some of those early, uh, who's the other guy, Jim? Jim Baker. Jim Baker sacked his board. The, the, the aloneness means no, means no accountability. That's what it really means. Also another important A. You, 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 you give up accountability. Because you want the freedom in order to go and do the other stuff. The, then these are steps downwards that burglars identified. Uh, in, the, in the secular world, and I looked at that and I said, yeah, that's in the Christian world as well. The second A down. Uh, off to the aloneness. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting tired. Just give me a minute to uh, get my brain geared at. Uh, arrogance. And by the way, these are good markers to look for. Arrogance. Highly successful people become very arrogant. I'm the one who's successful. I don't need any advice or guide. And so there's a, a growing uh, arrogance. The third one is an addiction. It's an addiction to adrenaline, for one thing. When you're highly successful, very soon th that achievement loses its power to give you pleasure. And then quickly you have to start another project. I am always concerned about leaders I see always starting new projects because you need that new project to give you a boost again. So, uh, addiction. And it really is an addiction to adrenaline at that point. And then the final A that Burglass identified was adultery. And so Jimmy Swaggart drives out to Palm Springs one day has a red jaguar and I sort of resent him using a red jaguar because I have a red jaguar and I don't like people who drive red jaguars to let me down like that. And he picks up a prostitute. And you know, this is the interesting thing about this sort of sexuality is that when it, it's very seldom a genuine emotional involvement. It is very often a demeaning thing. It is often reaches down. So a Teg Haggard goes to a male prostitute. Jimmy Swaggart went to a female prostitute. Because, you see, even normal sexuality doesn't give you, any, give you any much pleasure either. It has to be something more bizarre than that. It's got to be something gross. And I have seen this again and again. How could someone like that do a thing like that? Well, it's because it's the only way it'll give you any pleasure. Because everything else, you see. This, and, and this is tied very heavily into the success-drivenness. Um, secondly, we need to understand that behind sexuality is an addictive process as powerful as cocaine. As powerful as cocaine. Um, so I'm going to jump quickly to that because uh, I, I do want to share with you the, uh, the research I've been doing in that area. Uh, and I'm going to start right here. 
And now I'm going to show you a little picture of the brain. Where did I put my pointer? Uh, it's, can you see it? I, let me just get my pointer out of here. No, I can't find it. Uh, you can hardly see it, huh? Uh, that's a pity. Because what, what I'm trying to show that is that there is down... You see those arrows pointing all down to a little thing part there in that picture of the brain? That little, that little point there is called the pleasure center. Also known as a reward center. Very fascinating research how that was discovered. I wish I could tell you the story sometime. But it, very fascinating. There's a center, a very specific center for pleasure. Research with, uh, started with rats where they put electrodes in and accidentally they were looking for the anger center in the, in the brain and accidentally they put the electrodes in this particular part of the brain and every time they pressed the button that sent an electrical signal, signal the rats seemed to enjoy it. So what they did was they hooked a, a little switch up that a rat could press. And the rat would go and press that button. And every time he pressed it, he actually got a surge of pleasure. And that's that center. All those arrows are pointing to that center. Because these are pathways of pleasure that take pleasure to this pleasure center. But this little rat pushed the, the, the button, enjoyed the pleasure. He pushed it again and enjoyed the pleasure. And he kept pushing it and he kept pushing it. That rat died pushing that button and he wouldn't, he wouldn't eat he wouldn't drink any water he, didn't even, he even refused sex they introduced a female he, he wanted that pleasure it overrode everything else now I, I've got into this area of research uh, because of some cocaine addiction stuff I was doing for the Veterans Administration Hospital where cocaine has helped us really understand what addictions are all about and, and, and any stimulation that pleasure sent is extremely powerful and takes precedence over everything else. Now, there are many pathways that lead to that. And this is why I use the expression hidden addictions in my, in my book on hidden addictions there. Because the, it's not just substances that send signals to that pleasure center. Cocaine is the most powerful. Cocaine has a direct pathway to that pleasure center. And it hijacks the pleasure center so that nothing else can give pleasure. Hijacks it. And, it. and it is very powerful. But there are also behaviors that are addicting. If we had time, you know, I would want to develop that uh, with you. But just quickly let me say that we, we, we know that behaviors are addicting. There was a time when the addictionologist said, no, only substances were addicting, not, not behaviors. Who could argue that gambling is not addicting. I mean, who can argue that anymore? Well, we now know it is because we, we've traced the pathways. We can find the pathways for that. But back, I'm talking 20, 25 years ago, big debate. No, it can't. But who argues now that it's, it's addicting? Who can argue today that sex can't, cannot be addicting? I mean, there are behaviors that are addicting. Some of those, now the interesting thing, what I point out in my book is that even though these are behaviors, they do in fact involve biochemical mechanisms. Adrenaline is one of them. What, 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 what is it about gambling that's addicting? Well, you bet and you lose, you bet and you lose, and you bet and you lose, and one day you bet and you win, and you get this tremendous surge of adrenaline excitement. 
and then you lose and lose and lose and lose and lose and you get it. it. If you won every time you bet, you could never become a, a gambling addict. And the gambling industry has studied this so carefully, they know how often you have to lose to get the addiction and keep the addiction. If you win too much, you, you know, you, you don't become addicted. If you don't win enough, you don't become addicted. And, and the gambling, Vegas has got this down to a fine art. They know exactly how to work it all. But anyway, there are behaviors that are addicting. Shopping, shopaholics. I had a client once used to describe, she said, I'm telling you, I would be driving along, and there's the super, the mall over there, I'm driving along, and my car turns. <laughs> and I, I have, I can't really, you know, it just, I just, I'm telling you, it turns, the wheel turns by itself, I'm not, I'm trying not to, and it, you know, and she'd go and spend $3,000 and buy stuff she doesn't need. And then husband gets mad, and the next day he has to return it all. She can't, and, and it, it's this, it, the, what I'm leading up to, it's all about this pleasure center. All addictions have to do with this pleasure center, whether it's substance or behaviors. And any behaviors that can stimulate the pleasure center are, are a problem. Now, what happens uh, is, is something called hedonic dysregulation. Hed, anhedonia, pleasure. When the pathways to the pleasure become disturbed, disrupted. Um, and the neurotransmitter is dopamine. Every time you send a signal to that pleasure center, your dopamine goes up a little bit. And if you bombard that pleasure center, right? Um, just keep bombarding it. The system sooner or later becomes flooded. And pleasure can't get through. And to diagram this flooding, I, I, I just look at this little diagram. You see the pleasure center over there. And as you begin to stimulate the center, a barrier begins to build. It's like a wall goes up. So that the next time, next time you stimulate some pleasure, it's got to go higher than the one before. And that, we see that in all addiction, right? You take this amount of tranquilizer now, and very soon you need more tranquilizer. This is this, is this process. It's got to be higher. Now, that's true for, for all behaviors. When, I'm, when my, my teenage daughter is sort of flooding her system, uh, she is, in fact, building a barrier. So that next time, it's got to be a little bit more. I, I was sharing at lunch. Uh, this is the, one of the problems of multitasking. You know, you know what I mean by that, huh? <clears throat> I, I went to my, visit my daughter a, a couple of months ago, and there was my granddaughter, my 14-year-old granddaughter, Caitlin, sitting at her computer doing a homework. She was writing an essay. But the screen on the computer was split in half. So the left side was her essay. The right side, she was actually te texting whatever they on the right side. So she's writing an essay while she, she's writing notes to this friend, right? Then I noticed that she had in her left ear a cell phone. In her right ear, she had an iPod. Okay, so now she's listening to music, talking to a friend, blogging on one half of her computer, and doing her essay on the other. That's multitasking. 
Almost every teenager on God's earth does that now. My other daughter has two cell phones with an earphone for each ear because she wants to be able to talk to two friends at the same time and you can't do that on one cell phone, see? But anyway, here's my, my daughter and I said to Caitlin, oh, Caitlin, I don't know how, I don't know how you could possibly, how you could possibly be doing anything meaningful on your essay with all that going on. And she turned to me and looked at me and said, Papa, you don't understand. <laughs> you don't understand. <coughs> if I don't do this other stuff, I, I can't do the, the essay. In other words, I, I have to feel good about this other stuff in order to do my essay. Now, Time magazine came out with an article about three months ago, blasting multitasking. We, we foster it. We think it's good. That our kids are good at multitasking. They are good at it. And, and, and that will be a skill that will hold them in good stead. The research, I tell you now, the research says no. It interferes with learning. No effective learning takes place. It's probably a total disaster for our young people. And this, this is in my new book, Thrilled to Death, that will be coming out in September. That multitasking... But you see, what multitasking does is it's overstimulating the pleasure center. It's sending signals all the time. And, and I can't concentrate on the essay because I've got to have this going. And now, but as, as we begin to flood the system, this barrier goes up, but then it gets even higher. Now, the threshold is growing all the time. Now, in our culture today, going along with our cortisol and other stuff, we already have, all of us, few exceptions maybe, already have a certain amount of barrier already built to our pleasure center. And that's why we can no longer take pleasure in the simple little things of life. Very difficult. Uh, and this same, in what happens in depression, the anhedonia in depression, is that the anhedonia switches off the dopamine so that it can't carry any signals to the pleasure center. One of the antidepressants that are used in severe anhedonia is actually a dopamine medication. It helps to boost the dopamine circuits. This, is, this process is of anhedonia. It's an addictive process because in the sense that you always have to try and get more pleasure to get to it. Now, what has this got to do with uh, sexual addictions? All sexual activity is mediated by this pleasure center. Locus accumbens is the pleasure center. And these systems can become flooded. The more stimulation, the more arousal, the more flooded it becomes. And I have this little chart here, and I'm going to just explain it, then we'll need, we need to take a break. I call this the sexual continuum of arousal. Now, this is important for understanding sexual addictions. And I usually use this chart with male groups, when I lead a male seminar or something like that. This chart is, uh, is, uh, shows what is going on. As we increase the level of adrenaline excitement associated with sexuality, it, 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 the more... It, see, it, how we get pleasure in sex is simple, ordinary sex doesn't give enough pleasure for most people. I'm talking about males in particular, but not only. What we have to do is add 
an extra excitement to it. And that extra excitement is we add adrenaline activity to it. We, and this is why you get sadomasochism. This is why you get, you, you try to add some extra excitement to it in order to up the pleasure a little bit. And as you add this extra adrenaline excitement, the first, some of that, the first part of that continuum, it's called, the first part is labeled normal, because I suppose that even in normal sexuality, a certain amount of excitement is appropriate. It's nice to light candles and, and you know, to, to make it romantic and all of that, add that little bit of extra excitement. So there's a limit, there's a normal range in which we add variety and etc. to get it. But if we keep pursuing adding this adrenaline pleasure, we then move to the second level and it's what I call a distorted normal. And that's probably where most people are today and that is that it's a distorted normal. We, it has to be something unusual. It has to be an extraordinary experience. We, we're always looking for that big experience. One of the things I finally learned in my own sexual life is how beautiful, plain, ordinary, loving sex can be without the embellishments. But as you add to that, it then becomes addiction, the third step. Now, the point I make when I show this to, 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 to men is that it's, it's the same road. You go, start going down that road, you need to know where it's going to lead. So now it becomes addicting. That extraordinary extra experience, that use of pornography, that, uh, you know, that emotional relationship you've developed with somebody, or even that affair, because very often affairs are not relationships, they're just an adrenaline booster are putting you in the addiction. Now you become addicted to that. Now it's hard to go from that back to ordinary sexual feelings. And take it a step further. Addiction then becomes perversion. And I make a distinction between addiction and perversion. When it becomes perversion, it's the addiction, it's beyond addiction, and it is now using objects for sexual gratification that should not be used for for sexual gratification. Good example would be pedophilia. But I try to point out that things like that are just one step away, one step further down the road. And then finally, on this continuum, it becomes pathology. This is serious sickness. This is the serial killer. We've had a spate of serial killings again in the United States. In every instance, it is a severe sexual... It, it, it was started out simply as an addiction early on and then became a perversion, and now it's serious pathology because the ultimate thrill, you see, comes when you murder somebody while you're having sex. And that is, you know, as sick as it gets. But <clears throat> that road, moving to distortion, moving along there, is, is a dangerous road. And, and the point I want to leave you with before we take the break is that the more you pursue pleasures, the more you drive to get that extra 
thrill in your life. And, and, and this is where the drive for success can be really hazardous. The more you drive down that road, the more vulnerable you become. And, uh, and ultimately, it can be something that is very, very destructive. The whole area of sexuality needs redeeming. I, I, I think that in our churches, we have to present a challenge to our people here. We, we, we have to lift up a purer sexuality. Part of it is that we don't talk about sex in general. One of the things, my, when my daughter and I wrote, wrote a, uh, the Sexual Sex of Eve book, one of the things that Rick Warren did at Saddleback, which is a big church, 24,000 or so uh, in the United States, was he invited my daughter and I to come and take over the church services. Other churches will let us come during a midweek service, you know, <laughs> to talk about. He said, no, I want, I, I want to demonstrate to my people that sexuality is, is a God-given thing. And we're going to do it in our church service. Parents, if you don't want your children to be here for that, then leave them in the Sunday school. But we're going to talk. About, and and it, it was a wonderful model for his people to demonstrate that that sexuality is God-given. But the way we are going now, sexuality is becoming dangerous. And we need to somehow get this back on, on, on track again. Well, our, I, I think we, we're due for a break, so why don't we take a 10-minute break, if that's okay with you, and then uh, we're into the last session. <laughs>